0: Take your Bibles and turn there to Matthew chapter 6. We are plugging our way through uh, this great account from Levi, the tax collector, who left his tax collecting booth and followed Jesus. And here he is, late in his life, after the ministry of our Lord, recounting for us, under the direction and superintendence and movement of the Holy Spirit, all that Christ did, all that made up the ministry of our Lord, And the finished product is an inspired, inerrant word for us, and a powerful word for us, beginning with the Galilean ministry of our Lord, and in particular here, beginning with this great discourse, the Sermon on the Mount. One of the most well-known sections of the Bible, and yet probably one of the least studied in its detail, and I've just been richly blessed as we have come back through this uh, familiar area and been reconnected with the demands for the kingdom. Okay, This has been all about the kingdom from the beginning, and it's been all about our hearts from the beginning. And it's no different today. We're here in the most, maybe the most familiar of the most familiar sections with the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer. And uh, here we are in areas where we have, for years, many of us, recited these verses uh, by memory. And Renee and I were talking even this morning about how familiar this portion of the Bible is. In fact, it's so familiar that we rarely think about what it actually says. And if we stop and think about this particular section that we're going to look at today of the Lord's Prayer, of the Disciples' Prayer, I think you'll find that there is rich truth for us uh, as we examine our own hearts and our own lives in this issue of prayer. Uh, Last week, just by way of review, we looked at the first verse Of the disciples' prayer, verse 9, pray then like this, the Lord says, and we examine two foundational principles that guide us in our prayer life. You remember this? Prayer, foundationally, is made up of a recognition of who God is. He is our Father who is in heaven, and a recognition of what He deserves. Hallowed or made holy, be your name. Set apart, completely distinguished from all others, be your name. It is who God is that consumes us when we pray, and it is consuming desire of our hearts to see Him receive what He deserves. That was the initial elements of the upgrade or update to our practice of prayer. We know about the dangers that are here. David has even mentioned them this morning as we prayed with him the danger of hypocrisy, the danger of superficiality in our worship, of just going through the motions and external practice of righteousness, which in fact is completely devoid of God's power. People who have lived their lives in the pattern of hypocrisy are commented on in Scripture as those who have a form of godliness, but they deny the power of godliness. So they have no power There is no life, and yet externally there is some element of the practice. And that is our danger this morning. That's what we're examining in our own lives. Am I practicing something that is not matching the heart behind that practice? And our Lord Jesus, as our King in this kingdom that is His, is very much concerned about the inward first, followed by the outward and like a computer software we talked about last week, update, we're looking to correct glitches in our prayer life, we're looking to patch up holes where danger is seeping into our prayer life, and we're stepping back and trying to take an objective look at one of these most familiar sections of our Bible and say, what does this passage, what are the implications of this passage on my worship of the one true God and of my life in obedience to Him? And I trust that's been your desire and your prayer this week. I trust that you have addressed your Heavenly Father, knowing who He is, and asking and desiring what He deserves. So if last week was the first two foundational principles, today we're going to look at the last two foundational principles, and they're foundational for a very specific and practical reason. If you are got your eyes open reading the, the Lord's Prayer, the Disciples' Prayer, you'll find that the first... Two verses focus us entirely on God Himself in our prayer. So those pronouns are your, your, your. Very much a Godward focus as the priority of our prayer. And then those last verses, 11 through 13, focus with new pronouns on us and our and our concerns and our needs in light of the person and the character and the work of our Heavenly Father. So foundational, in so much as they are priorities. And they are priority because of the placement that the Lord gave them in this model prayer for us, in this model outline for our prayer lives. He put them at the front, so we're going to keep them at the front as well. And the priority and the foundation must be a focus that is Godward. The Lord's model for us is a prayer life that centers first on the character and desires of God himself, not on our own. This is yet another layer of countercultural mindset and mind renewal for the believer today. We want to pray with the Lord Jesus in his humanity before his heavenly father, not my will, but thine be done. That is our desire. That's our model that he is going to give us here and that he exemplified for us in the garden of Gethsemane. And it is a serious work of renewing the mind, Romans twelve one and 2, that must go on for us to focus our attention first on God and then only second in relation to God on our own needs and concerns. So if in verse 9 we found out who God is and we desire and recognize what he deserves, then we move to verse 10 today. And we'll look at these last two foundational principles. Prayer begins with desire for what God plans. It's a recognition of who He is and a desire for what He deserves, a desire for what He plans, and a desire for what He wills, what He desires. Okay? And we'll find these studying verse 10. And the next Sunday morning, Lord willing, we'll look at verses 11, 12, and 13 and conclude the study of the disciples' prayer Uh, The following week. Let's read it together just to reacquaint ourselves with this section. We'll begin reading in verse 5, and I'm going to read all the way down through verse 15, okay? So you can follow along and read with me as I read aloud. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, trespasses so we come this morning with particular attention to verse 10 and in isolation really verse 10 as the follow-up to what we found in verse 9 in the first two foundational principles we find now in verse 10 two final foundational principles bedrocks for our prayer life priorities for our specific prayers these are not folks just at the outset these are not suggestions for you to consider nor are they meditations just to think on christ is actually saying these ought to be the patterns of your prayer life these are the ideas these are the truths that ought to be consuming your interaction with god himself so the challenge for us is not just to take this as a theoretical model And to kind of examine it and kind of take it and say, well, that's valuable. We're thankful that the Lord gave us that theoretical model. But to actually then take the next step from seeing what he said was the model prayer and then looking at our own individual prayer lives. I mean, actually taking stock of the value and the benefit and the worth of my own prayers with God, my communication, my interaction with my Heavenly Father. These are wasted verses for us if they're just something that we occasionally recite together at the worship service. And these are wasted verses for us if they're just theoretical verses that we see as something outside of us, but not touching our very practical prayer lives. These verses put their hands all over your spiritual life. This is up close and personal. These verses stomp on our prayer lives' toes, if you will. It's uncomfortable. These verses invade the personal space of our prayer lives. And we must let them. Because they are the words of our Lord Jesus, recorded and, res- and preserved for us by the Holy Spirit Himself. So, verse 10. Let your kingdom come, or your kingdom come, your will be done. There is an understood verb there. It's an imperative. We are requesting, we are desiring that the kingdom come and that God's will be done. So number one, as the second of the four really foundational principles, let's look at number one this morning in verse 10. Prayer begins with desire for what God plans. There is an understood element in the prayer life of the kingdom citizen here that acknowledges that there is a kingdom and desires for that kingdom to show up, to come, to suddenly be present. That's the verb that's used here. This isn't just some nebulous thought of the future. This is a real desire of the kingdom citizen. This is a flashback for us if we've been with this study, if you've been with us through the whole study. It's a flashback back to the very beginning of what we found in Matthew's Gospel. In fact, in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist is proclaiming the coming of the Messiah. And you'll remember all those proofs that Jesus was, in fact, the promised Messiah. Matthew lays those out for us. He gives us a strong argument. He uses John the Baptist in chapter 3 and the testimony of John the Baptist, then the testimony of God himself at Jesus' baptism. But he says in verse 2 of chapter 3, here's John the Baptist's words to the people who were gathering to hear him preach. Repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. It's it's right now. The kingdom of heaven is now. It's not coming. It's here. Over in chapter 4, in verse 17, Jesus begins his preaching ministry. And Jesus begins his preaching ministry with this theme. Verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's a reality. It's here. Therefore, you must respond rightly to it being on the scene. And so with that backdrop, and by the way, Jesus did not preach that as his entire message. Okay? You can't take that verse and bring it to me and say, there's no way we should be doing 45 minutes when Jesus' message was just six words or whatever it is. Okay? He preached longer than that. That's what we found out in the Sermon on the Mount. And don't read it and time it because I know what it takes to read it and time it. And I don't want to have that standard held up either because it's not that long as well. Here's Jesus' theme. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now we find Jesus commanding us and telling us, as the disciples of Christ, as the kingdom citizens, you need to pray, Father in heaven, let your kingdom come and be here with us. Now that seems at face value to have some level of paradox in it, a seeming contradiction, right? If the kingdom is here, why, as kingdom citizens, as those who have been saved into this kingdom, why are we praying that the Father would bring his kingdom, or that the kingdom would appear. Well, foundationally, let's think about this. Number one, the kingdom is not a created order over which God reigns as sovereign. First of all, understand that the kingdom here is the very specific and salvific kingdom that we've been talking about the entire time in the Sermon on the Mount. This is not the reign of God as king over his entire creation which is unchanging, which is always present. As Creator God, He stands as the King of His creation. This is the very special kingdom of heaven, which is very specific. And we just studied this at the very outset of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the kingdom that was inaugurated at Christ's first coming. In fact, specifically, this kingdom was inaugurated at the ministry of Jesus Christ, beginning with His baptism. This kingdom of Christ, this kingdom of heaven, God's kingdom, under the delegated reign of the second person of the Trinity, began or was inaugurated or was kicked off at Jesus' first coming, and it will see its consummation, it will see its fulfillment, it will see its fullness, if you will. When? At the second coming of the Lord Jesus. He came, He died, He was raised... And he will return. And when he returns. The kingdom will come. In all of its fullness. The kingdom. Will be established. In all of its glory. None will stand against it. God's purpose on this earth. Will find its completion. In the future. Coming kingdom of heaven. It is here in part. It has begun. If you are in Christ. You are in it. You will forever be in the kingdom you acknowledge and experience and delight in the internal spiritual benefits of the kingdom i mean you have real benefits as a christian do you not you have a spirit who has been granted to you who indwells you that's a benefit of the kingdom that's a benefit and a promise that was made in the old testament as a part of the coming of the messiah to establish god's kingdom You have a very real benefit of the Holy Spirit guiding and directing your life, of fellowship with God's people, of the direct oversight and ministry of Christ Himself as head of His church. And while you experience those benefits, and while I experience those benefits, those are only the very beginning. Those are the appetizers to what will come when the kingdom comes in its fullness. What has been inaugurated, what we experience now in the ministry of Christ, will come to all of its glory. None will stand opposed. Christ will conquer all who stand against Him. And He will establish His reign on the throne of David, a very literal throne. He will establish the nation of Israel. And those grafted in, those of us who are Gentiles grafted into God's family, will enjoy the full benefits of Of his kingdom. This is the prayer. This is the thought. This is the meditation that consumes the kingdom citizen. A desire for what God has planned. We want to see God's plans come to fullness. That's what we're saying when we pray Lord, let your kingdom come. I want to see what you have planned come to fruition. The prayer of the kingdom citizen is for the culmination and the maturity of the kingdom of heaven. And that has some real implications for us. What is it that we're praying when we pray that the kingdom would come? Well, there's a couple present realities that we're praying for, and there are a couple future realities that we're praying for. In the present, let's think about what we're praying for. For the kingdom to come to its fruition. That means that we are praying for the continuation and the eventual conclusion or completion of of the salvation work that God is doing in sinners lives right the kingdom will not come into being until God has completed his salvation work so we're praying for the salvation of sinners for the continuing and completed work of God in saving his elect not only that it has a very real sense in which we are praying for the kingdom reality that we enjoy spiritually and internally at this point be ever-present on our minds, building an anticipation for what will come. So we're praying that the consuming passion and thought of our lives would be this kingdom that we enjoy and that we look forward to. From a future standpoint, or with a million-dollar word, eschatological standpoint, the last times, the end of all things standpoint, we are praying for something that has a very distinct future reality. We're praying for the kingdom to come to this earth. Unfamiliar territory of your Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 20 and 21. I was reading through those this week, and I thought to myself, Surely this is not as familiar as where we are in Matthew chapter 6. There are all kinds of things that scare you away from the book of Revelation from the Apostle John. But you will find in Revelation 20 and 21 a kingdom that will be established. A king with a white robe, who rides a horse, who devours and conquers all his enemies. The bloodshed is unbelievable and he establishes his throne and he rules for 1,000 years in what is known as the millennial kingdom, the kingdom on earth. Satan is bound, he is removed from the picture, and Christ reigns here on the earth. This kingdom for which we pray is not of this world. And folks, this is just implication, application, really a practical aspect to what we're praying here. Because John 18 tells us, John 18:36, Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. That has a direct application to what we're praying for. Understand that the kingdom for which we're praying is a messianic kingdom. It is a kingdom that is accomplished through the spiritual work of the Holy Spirit. It is a kingdom that is wrapped up in the eternal decrees and purposes of God. Therefore, we need to be careful in how we think about the coming of this kingdom. There is no social plan. There is no political plan. There is no endeavor in a human sense that will accomplish the kingdom work of God. And we need to be careful about that. Sometimes the lines get real blurry between our political commitment or our social commitment and our idea of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God will be established by the salvation of sinners which will result ultimately in the king coming, gathering his people, and reigning supreme without opposition. That cannot be accomplished by any social agenda. And that cannot be accomplished by any human political agenda. There is no wisdom that could bring that to pass. So we are praying for something that is distinctly God's, and it is distinctly his work that will bring it to us. It's not that we're praying that we will bring the kingdom. We're praying that he will bring his kingdom to us. There is no government and there is no social cause that can aid or bring about the kingdom of heaven. And that has led to mass confusion in the history of those who have professed faith in Jesus Christ. We pray then for the coming fulfillment of what we already enjoy as the followers of the king. And we pray for the consummation of what has been founded in the coming of Christ. We want to see the kingdom in all of its fullness. We want Him to be on His throne in every way. We want to see His glory and His majesty. We want Isaiah 6 experience. We want to have a fall down on your face, unbelievable God is glorious experience. We want the kingdom to come. We want to see Him in all of His majesty. That's the desire, and that is the prayer, the petition of the kingdom citizen. He's consumed with a recognition of who God is. It results in a desire to see God receive what He deserves, His name to be hallowed and to be lifted up. And it results in a desire to see what God has planned come to fruition. This is the model given to us from our Christ, from our King, as His kingdom citizens. So it is not our kingdom, and this is crucial, it's not our kingdom that stands at the forefront of our prayer lives. It's not my little domain. It's not the kingdom of 1605 22nd Avenue, Kingsburg, California, that stands at the center and at the foundation of my prayer life. It is His kingdom. It's His name. It's His fame. It's His renown. It's His glory. It's the future of His supreme reign over all that is His. That is what we're praying for, and that is at the forefront of the kingdom citizen's prayer life. Isn't that revolutionary? I mean, when was the last time that was a part of our prayer, thanking the Lord for the food at the table, right? That is not usually the consuming thought. In fact, the general Christian kind of subculture idea of prayer is that we get together and we mention to each other uh, which relative has which physical ailment and then we just pray for those physical ailments and we pray that things would go better for our business and we pray for any number of legitimate prayer requests and then we're done and we're on our way and the assumption is that somehow these realities are still true but folks this is the model prayer we're to be praying these things because they consume our passion. They consume our attention. We're first and foremost citizens of His kingdom. So we desire His kingdom to come in all of its fullness. Secondly then, moving quickly, prayer begins with a desire for what God Plans, and secondly, it begins with a desire, or finally, I guess, it it begins with a desire for what God wills or what He desires Himself. I'm concerned in prayer with the plan of God, the big picture, and I'm also concerned with the very specific, narrow, and and impersonal desires of the God of the universe. We find that in such a familiar phrase for us in verse 10. Your will be done. I mean, that just rolls off the tongue. Your kingdom come, your will be done. I always got confused when it got into later into the the disciples' prayer. I couldn't remember if it was our debts or the bread that came in the order. But this order, never a problem. These ones just roll off the tongue. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. And we just move right on. And yet, this is a very serious and weighty little sentence. Let your will be done. Our prayer life must be founded on a recognition of who God is, on a desire to see Him receive what He deserves, on a desire to see what He has planned come to fulfillment. And now, in this little phrase, it must be founded on a desire to see what God desires come to pass here now we face an important component of our broader theological framework because i don't know about you but if we stop for just a moment and think about what we're saying when we pray that god's will be done those of you who share our high view of god which is undeniable from the scriptures that he is the sovereign all-knowing all-powerful God of the universe, that there is nothing that goes on that is outside of His view and His parameters and His plan, that He has decreed the beginning of history to the end of history, that He is the sovereign God, why are we praying that His will would be done? Isn't that a foregone conclusion? Isn't that part and parcel with who God is? I mean, doesn't that raise the question to us? Why are we praying this? I mean, if we're praying for His will to be done, isn't His will going to be done? For that matter, why are we praying that His kingdom would come? We already know the end of the story. It's coming. Why are we asking for His will to be done? How do we pray for something that seems guaranteed to take place, whether we pray for it or not? And this is critical. This is a crucial foundational doctrine that needs to be a part of our thinking when we think about God we need to think correctly about what scripture reveals about God's will so many times I have been asked about God's will most commonly how do we find it Um, as if God's will is somehow lost and we've got to search until we can find it how do I know it How do I come to understand it? And how do I then live in light of God's will? It is crucial for us. It is crucial, folks, for us to understand that there are two facets of God's will revealed in the Scriptures. There are two aspects to His will that must both be held, though they are difficult for our finite minds, they must be held up as equally true. There is the aspect of His will that is immovable and unfordable. It is his will of decree. This facet of God's will encompasses his plan for humanity and his reign over all that comes to pass. Job 42, verse 2, Job confesses. You alone are God and nobody can stop you from doing what you're going to do. That's right after you remember in Job when God says, Hey, Job, now that you've accused me, I was wondering... Where were you when the foundations of the deep were laid? Where were you, all wise, suffering Job, when the world and the stars and the planets were created? And Job responds at the end of that long questioning from God himself. Job says, I confess. Job 42, verse 2, nobody can thwart you. There is an aspect of the will of God that is sometimes secret, sometimes revealed, but it is unthwartable. It cannot be stopped. Psalm 115, verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens, and He does what He pleases. He does what He wants to do. And that is His prerogative, as the holy sovereign. It is His right, and we are grateful that He does what He pleases. Romans chapter 9, a famous passage dealing with the sovereignty of God and the salvation of sinners. Ask this question in verse 19. If, if God's electing purpose is set and settled, then how in the world can we be blamed? The implication of that is, if we can't affect his will, how is it that we should be held accountable for our eternal situation? And by the way, the answer to that question comes in verse 20. And the answer is, who in the world do you think you are to ask that question of your creator? That's the answer. You're a piece of clay, and he's the potter. You don't deserve, nor do you have the right to ask that question. But the underlying idea there is that God's will, in one aspect, is immovable. It is unshakable. It is unthwarted. It cannot be stopped. And yet there is another component of God's will that we see revealed in Scripture, such places as Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, where the will of God is the goal of renewing our minds, so that we can know what is the good and perfect and acceptable will of God. That means that there are people who don't know it, who don't relate to the will of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3-8 through eight, says, This is the will of God for you, even your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Folks, the will of God is for you to abstain from sexual sin. And you know today, and I know, and Scripture acknowledges that the will of God is not being accomplished today on this earth. Right? Their will of God is being broken. There is a will of demand that God brings to us that can be thwarted. It can be resisted, and it is resisted by all who follow the will of Satan, the great opposer to God. There is a facet of God's will that encompasses His commands for obedience and righteousness, and it can and is refused and rejected. That is all within and under the umbrella of His sovereign plan and decree. So it is appropriate when people ask, was it God's will that my parents got a divorce, that my, my family member get deathly sick, Fall apart in front of our eyes? Was it God's will? Did God desire for my family member to abort their child? And does that fit under God's will? And the answer is no. No. He clearly commanded opposite truths. His will was not accomplished. And yet, at the same time, there is nothing outside of His parameters of His decree, and therefore we can rest in the fact that God was utilizing and is using what was done. For his own glory and his purposes. This is the deep end of the theological pool, and it should make your brain hurt if you're actually engaging your brain. God is overall, He is outside of time, He has established His decree, all things that happen in the span of time are under His watch care and His plan. And yet, he has given within time-space clear commands for righteousness that he has ordained can be rejected and can be disobeyed. But this much is sure from Matthew chapter 6 and verse 10. His will of demand is absolutely obeyed in one place. What is that one place right now where his will of demand is universally without opposition Obeyed. In heaven. In heaven. In fact, we find that in Psalm 103 and verse 20. The psalmist ascribes this reality. It says in Psalm 103 verse 20 that the angels do the very commands of God. Bless the Lord, O you, his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. That is, you accomplish his will. You do the will of God. It is our prayer as kingdom citizens that the will of God be done. That it be obeyed. That it be completed. That it be accomplished. We're praying, if we follow this model prayer, for the obedience of God at the level that it happens in heaven here on earth. We're praying for unhindered, unopposed obedience. Of God's will of demand. Folks, that will only take place in its fullness. In the millennial kingdom. In the new heaven and the new earth, which will be our eternal existence. We are praying much in connection with the first phrase of verse 10. Your kingdom come and your will be done. Those two things will happen simultaneously. And yet we are praying in the present reality that as God's kingdom citizens we would be practicing, we would be progressing by His grace in obeying Him with the least amount of opposition, the least amount of rebellion so that we would be practicing up for the kingdom experience that will be ours at the second coming of Christ. We desire more than anything for our own lives and for the lives of God's people that He be obeyed Absolutely. He will be glorified. Absolutely. And most purely in the obedience that will characterize his kingdom citizens throughout eternity. The testimony of heaven is that all is accomplished that God desires without hesitation, without opposition. And that's our prayer. That's our prayer for our lives. That's our prayer for everyone else's life that we're praying for. That's our prayer for the church. That's our prayer in the big picture of what we are bringing when we commune with our Father. Now, folks, this is absolutely outside of the box of what we normally think of as prayer. Because this places us squarely in a Godward focus, a God-centered perspective. This is an upward view. This is a Colossians 3 perspective. This is our mind set on things above and it will drastically change the way you pray about things below. What is it that you desire more than anything else in the petitions, the requests that your Heavenly Father loves to hear from you in prayer? You desire to see His name glorified. You desire to see His kingdom established and His reign known in all of its fullness. And you desire to see perfect obedience to His will his desires you want to see what he wants accomplished while we're praying for a future reality to come to pass we're praying for the present application in our lives as kingdom citizens we're praying for our own obedience when we follow the model of our lord and we pray let your kingdom come let your will be accomplished let it be done let it be fulfilled we're praying for unhindered obedience. These are the two final two foundational principles that we see from verse 10. We're consumed in our prayer lives as kingdom citizens with an understanding and a recognition and a confession of who God is, and we desire because of that to see Him receive what He deserves. We desire to see His plans fulfilled, and we desire to see His will accomplished in perfection. That's the driving impulse of what we pray. And that has massive implications on our own heart attitude. That calls into question. That causes us, it should cause us, to examine whether or not we can actually pray this model. My good friend, Johnny, sits on my shelf, John Stott, and helps me every week as I think through these passages, listen to what, John Stott has said in commenting on this, It is comparatively easy to repeat the words of the Lord's Prayer like a parrot. Or indeed, a heathen babbler. Referencing back to verse 8. To pray them with sincerity, however, has revolutionary implications, for it expresses the priorities of a Christian. We are constantly under pressure to conform to the self-centeredness of secular culture. When that happens, we become concerned about our little name, liking to see it embossed on our notepaper or hitting the headlines in the press and defending it when attacked. About our little empire, bossing, influencing, manipulating people to boost our own ego. And about our silly little will, always wanting our own way and getting upset when it's frustrated. But in the Christian counterculture, Our top priority concern is not our name, or our kingdom, or our will, but God's. Whether we can pray these petitions with integrity is a searching test of the reality and depth of our Christian profession. Folks, to pray this model, to use this prayer as as the, the skeleton on which we hang our prayer life with our Heavenly Father is to examine whether or not we can actually even pray these petitions. Is this really where our heart is? This is a heart, and these are meditations. These are consuming focuses and thoughts. These are words that are said back to us as we communicate with our Father. These are realities that can only be true because of a heart transformed by the gospel. A beatitude heart, a blessed heart. Only then will it be about our Father and His name and His kingdom and His will. Until then, until there is a a transfer of guilt to Christ and of righteousness to our account, until there is a new heart of flesh replacing the heart of stone, until there is a spirit indwelling our lives, we will be praying. For our name, for our kingdom, and for our will. That will be the consuming passion. That will be the consuming focus. And it is a daunting task, as John Stott reminds us. Whether we can pray these petitions with integrity is a searching test of the reality and depth of our Christian profession. We need kingdom credibility. We need to be the real deal. We need to be authentic Christians, those who follow Christ. And because of our allegiance to Christ, our lives have been transformed. We need to pray better prayers, folks. I need to pray better prayers. Not more prayer, not more bad prayer, but good prayer. Prayer that focuses my heart on God himself. We need to pray better prayers and the prayer life of the kingdom citizen is just a testimony to the relationship he or she enjoys with the king should be an overflow of your heart and your love for your king the prayer life of the kingdom citizen reflects the new priorities of his or her life god's name god's kingdom god's will and the prayer life of the kingdom citizen is to be answered in their lives awaiting the ultimate answer to their prayers when we pray We begin with a recognition of who God is, what he deserves, and we focus our desires on his plans and his will. This is the foundation that leads us to a proper understanding of our own needs and our own desperate, desperate need of his intervention. This props up what we find in verses 11 through 13. It is these truths. These consuming thoughts of the kingdom citizen. I trust that God will use his word, that his spirit will help you examine your life and apply his word to your daily practice so that you're not found to be a hypocrite in your prayer life nor a shallow, superficial, empty, vain repetition, but a vital communication, a living interaction with the God of heaven. That's my prayer. And we pray that those of you who examine your life and as the Spirit probes and digs and sticks the Word of God between the joints and marrow, between the soul and spirit, and you find yourself under the conviction that you have no relationship to the Father through the Son, that you would turn, turn from your sin, placing your confidence in Christ and the wisdom of God, which is the foolishness of men, that at the cross, Your sin was transferred as the guilt of Christ and the wrath of God was poured out on him so that his righteous existence could be credited to your account. If you'll do that, if you'll believe, you will not be turned away. You will be saved. God will do a miraculous work and your focus and your attention will turn from your own way to following the king and pursuing his kingdom to its end.